So as I was thinking about it, I think Keith got the uh, optimistic topic and I got the pessimistic topic tonight, which is good because I'm a pessimist. Um, but the Bible, <laughs> the Bible contains both wonderful promises and also warnings. Can you agree with that? Yeah. It sure does. And um, I've been assigned two of the warning topics. I don't know if Chris did that on purpose. Um, I confess I'm a lot more comfortable standing up at dinner with the doctor and um, sharing about medical topics and health and things of that nature uh, than I am about um, uh, topics such as we'll talk about tonight, the mystery beast of Revelation. And I was thinking about this topic, and it seems to me that in this group of people, there's three groups of people. And I have no idea which any one of you are in, but there's one group of people who are going to be very familiar with what I share tonight. You've heard it before. You've probably studied in depth. Maybe you're very familiar with church history or something, and you just, you've heard it before. To that group of people, I would say, remember that Matthew 24, verse 4, and Matthew 24, verse 24, apply to you. What we're studying tonight is for you, even if you've heard it before. Because if you read those warnings, Jesus is speaking to Christians. Jesus is speaking to people who think they know the Bible pretty well. Let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall, as the good book says, you know? Maybe you've studied this before. Realize this message is still for you. You need to understand these things better than you think you will. There's probably another group of people um, who, for whatever reason, may have never heard this before. That's completely new or mostly new. And honestly, it'll probably come across as quite offensive, quite um, disagreeable, quite um, um, focusing too much on the negative, if you will. I already warned you I'm the pessimist, right? Um, and I guess to that group of people, allow me to apologize in advance. I've been up till midnight the last three nights at Memorial Hospital operating on people, and um, under best of circumstances, I'm probably not the world's greatest communicator. So I don't want you to fall for a trick of the devil. The devil has lots of tricks to get you to reject truth, and a very easy trick is to get you... Uh, get your feelings involved, you know? There's a song that I won't sing for you, but it uh, goes along like this. Feelings come and feelings go and feelings are deceiving. <laughs> Chris Osterwicki back there has heard that song. Um, we share that at one of our health programs. Um, anyhow, um, evaluate truth. Jesus said some interesting things about truth, didn't he? You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. This book is truth. And even if what we're talking about tonight is more of a warning and less optimistic than what Keith just finished sharing, it's still part of this book. And as we'll see Friday night, it's part of the everlasting gospel. There's probably a third group of people, and that group, I, for lack of a better explanation, they're probably somewhere in the middle. Maybe they've heard this once before. 
or maybe they haven't, but in any case, they're not offended because they think it doesn't matter. To that group, I would say, as I've thought about the topics that have been shared, there's a reason I think that most of what we've been talking about during our Bible binge, we've got this Bible, congratulations, by the way, you're halfway done with the Bible binge. Um, these topics are what I would consider, I'd call them present truth. There's lots of truths that are true for all time. God is love, is true at all times, all places, and it's a wonderful, precious truth. But there are certain truths of the Bible that are for a specific time in earth's history. And I think all of us can understand that the books of Daniel and Revelation, as my wife presented the very first talk, they are for a specific time in earth's history. I think we can understand that. And I could give you lots of examples from the Bible about that. Um, but if it's true that what we're studying tonight is for this time in earth's history, it's very important. Like the truth uh, back in the time of Noah, there's pretty much only one thing about present truth. It was get on the ark, right? Well, that was present truth for his day. For our day, there are different present truths, and I believe they're found in the books of Daniel and Revelation. I'll make a shameless plug here. I don't have all the details, but I believe that uh, we'll probably have some ongoing study in depth on the books of Daniel and maybe Revelation eventually. Um, I would say that what's been presented here tonight on, for instance, my wife on Daniel 2, we'll be talking a lot about Daniel 7 tonight. My father-in-law talked about Daniel 7 and all the beasts and what have you. It's probably less than 5 or 10% of what's actually there in the chapter. There is so much more that we could study. But for sake of time, we don't have that time. So with that introduction, again, I have no idea which group you're in, but let's, um, let's have another prayer, if you don't mind, and then we're going to jump in. Dear God, I ask that you will be with me. Give me the words to say. You know that I am tired, I am weak, I am worn, but your Bible can speak. And I ask that you would give your word power in your name. Amen. So um, my clicker ain't working here. There we go. This was in Canada several years ago. There was a uh, mile-long railroad or a train sitting on a railroad track, and people didn't pay much attention. It had about six locomotives, one of which was running, and something went terribly wrong. We don't think much about trains, and nobody paid any attention to this train, especially they didn't pay attention when it started moving. Turned out, though, that the brakes had malfunctioned, and it was slowly rolling downhill. And no one was on that train. No one was at the controls to stop it. As it rolled downhill, it reached speeds up to 60 miles an hour, where the speed limit was 10 miles per hour. Sometimes there were sparks flying. And when it reached the town of, I can't pronounce this Canadian name, Lac Megantic, something like that, someone who speaks French could probably correct me, it was 1.15 in the morning, and it derailed. That train had six million gallons of crude oil from North Dakota on it. The resulting explosions caused so much heat it was felt a mile away. How many people died? I wrote it down. 47 people died. It was Canada's worst rail disaster in 150 years. Who would have suspected that a train was about to bring death and disaster? We see trains all the time. My house is near a railroad track. I hear the whistle all the time. I don't pay any attention at all. We don't think about it. In April of 2013, near the finish line of the Boston Marathon, two explosions 
rocked the uh, afternoon air. As all the runners were finishing there, running toward the uh, finish line, two backpacks exploded. Nobody paid any attention to the backpacks sitting at the side of the road. We see backpacks all the time. They're common. No one knew that this thing they didn't give a second thought to was about to bring disaster, death, and destruction. Three people were immediately killed, and over 300 were instantly injured, most severely. Danger is often found in these least likely places. And in Earth's final days, spiritual danger comes. That's not a very pretty picture, is it? Um, people have wondered about the identity of the Antichrist. Some people thought it was Ronald Reagan. Do you remember that? Some of you remember Ronald Reagan? Because it was Ronald Wilson Reagan. Six, six, six. Ronald Reagan. Of course, Ronald Reagan was not the Antichrist. Who else did they think it was? Remember Ronald Reagan went to the USSR and met with somebody who had a mark on his forehead. Who was that? Mikhail Gorbachev. He had a port wine stain on his forehead, so people said, ah, the Antichrist. That's not a very good way to interpret the Bible, is it? No, we don't. I mean, of course, Mikhail Gorbachev is not the Antichrist. Tonight, um, I'm going to have most of the text on the screen, but not all. Um, we're going to move fairly quickly. This is Revelation 13, verse 1 through 4. And the question we want to answer is, who is this beast? I'm going to ask you to read with me. Let's all just look at the screen here. And um, in Daniel 7, I'll ask you to turn there, and we won't read together. But when it's on the screen, we'll read together. Here we go. Then I stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his horns ten crowns, and on his heads a blasphemous name. Verse 2. Now the beast which I saw was like a... Leopard, his feet were like the feet of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. The dragon gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. Verse 3 and 4. And I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded, and his deadly wound was healed. And all the world marveled and followed the beast. They worshipped the dragon who gave authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? Who is able to make war with him? What in the world could all this be about? Whatever it is, do you agree it's not a very pretty picture? This is kind of a hideous sort of picture that I have in my head, and of course a hideous picture that I put on the screen there. While we try to understand this, keep in mind a Bible truth that we find in 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen, And no wonder, for Satan himself... Is transforms himself into an angel of light. See, often when Satan works, he doesn't appear with a pitchfork and you know horns and pointy tail and all that kind of stuff. You've seen those caricatures, right? No. Satan sometimes appears like a train or a backpack or an angel of light. Why even study this subject? I believe it's important because it's in the Bible. But specifically, I believe it's important because, as we'll see on Friday, it is part of the everlasting gospel that is to be preached to the whole world at this time in earth's history. You find that in Revelation 14. We'll look at some of the passages there. That's Revelation 14:6. if you want to write it down. Our prayer tonight should be, God, help us to understand what you have for us in this word. Following... Revelation 14, verse 6. Here's probably the most strong warning in all of Scripture. Let's read it together. This is serious. Ready? 
Then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, verse 10, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. That's probably the most serious warning in all of Scripture. This is serious. This is very serious. If you follow the beast, if you worship the beast, as Revelation 13 said, almost the whole world's going to do, you will be lost. You cannot be saved. We need to understand this subject. We also want the Bible to be its own interpreter. If we want to understand Revelation, we need to understand the scriptures that Revelation is based on. Now, do you remember that beast? It said some strange things. His body was like the body of a leopard. He had feet like the feet of a... And he had teeth like the teeth of a... Do you remember any of those from somewhere? Have we studied that before? Right? You know, screen right here, you know, right over here. We've seen those beasts before in that same order, but in reverse, right? Revelation, it turns out, draws almost three quarters of the verses in the book of Revelation, draw from Old Testament imagery, especially from the book of Daniel. We need to understand Revelation in light of what it is um, building on. Let's review Daniel 7 very briefly. If you want to turn there in your Bibles, this is Daniel 7, verse 2. Daniel said, I spoke and I, and I said, I saw in the visions by night, behold, four winds of heaven strove upon the great sea. Now, when you're talking about beasts in Bible prophecy, it's not an epithet or an insult or a slur or something like that. What does a beast represent? We studied Daniel chapter 7, and Daniel 7.23 says, the fourth beast shall be the fourth kingdom on earth. Excuse me while I make my computer work here for me a little bit. It's no different than, you know, like America. What represents America? What beast do we have? We have the bald eagle, right? Canada, I'm not Canada. Um, Great Britain is typically a lion. Russia used to be a bear. You know, cartoonists use these kind of things. What about coming up out of the sea? Well, we also studied in Daniel chapter 7 that seas represent a place where there's a lot of people. Uh, Revelation 17, 15, if you want to write that down, the waters which you saw are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. In prophecy, sea represents a lot of people. And we even have winds we saw from Jeremiah 25, 32. My father-in-law gave that lecture, and I learned new things from that lecture. It was very good on Daniel chapter 7. Winds represent strife or war. We even have an expression in English, the winds of war. Have you heard this before? We have this expression in English language. It comes from the Bible. This will go a long way toward helping us understand the book of Revelation. Let's review the beasts. Daniel 7, verse 4. First beast was like a, we even have a picture up here, a lion, and that represented the kingdom of Babylon, just like Daniel chapter 2 had a head that started with Babylon. You'll notice if you study more deeply into Daniel, chapter 7 gives more details than Daniel chapter 2 did. Daniel chapter 8 will give more details than Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 11 gives a lot more details. And we get to Revelation. Revelation chapters about 12 through 15 or 16 give even more details about the same events. It's a biblical principle of repeat and enlarge. Second beast was a bear. It was raised up on one side, 
had three ribs in its mouth, raised up on one side, represented the Persians were stronger than the Medes. Three ribs in its mouth, we understood, represented the three kingdoms that Medo-Persia conquered. Um, Babylon, of course, was one of them. We read about that in the book of Daniel, but also Lydia and Egypt. The next kingdom, again, we got a picture over here, uh, represented Greece. Uh, it had four wings representing the speed with which it captured the world. Alexander the Great, of course, was the uh, first king there, and there were four, it was a divided into four after he passed off the scene. And thank goodness we don't have a picture up here of a dinosaur-like beast or whatever. But this represented Rome. What were the teeth made out of again? Iron, again, corresponding to the fourth kingdom of Daniel chapter 2. And of course, this beast, we discovered after it was passing off the scene, it divided into ten horns, similar to, we don't know for sure, but presumably the ten toes of the image in Daniel chapter 2. And then Daniel 7.24 says, The ten horns are ten kings which shall arise in this kingdom, and another shall rise after them. So the question is, what is this next power? Because we'll see this is the same power that's represented in Revelation chapter 13. Who is this little horn? The Bible gives at least nine identifying marks right here in the book of Daniel. If you look through the entire Bible, my father-in-law told me that some Bible scholar came closer to 20 or 30 identifying marks. We're certainly not going to go over that many tonight for sake of time. We're going to take the easy ones. Again, we're skimming the surface tonight. There's a lot more that we could say. So let's go through nine identifying marks of this little horn power that arises uh, from this fourth beast here. So what's the first one? Well, we call it the little horn, and there's a good adjective. It's little. Well, that's, that's pretty straightforward. We'll find that it's actually more of a helpful clue than you might, um, you might think otherwise. Certainly this power, whatever it is, is not, for instance, China or the United States or Russia, or Canada, or some other large nation. It's a little nation. It's small, okay? What's the next one? If you go to Daniel chapter 7, verse 8, I'm just taking some of the adjectives and the descriptors of this power from Daniel chapter 7. You're welcome to uh, follow along. We're looking at verse 8 right now. It tells us this little horn comes up among them. Do you see that? Verse 8 says it as well. 7 verse 8, it comes up among them. Well, we learned that those 10 horns represent the kingdoms of Western Europe. I'll list them for you. I had to write this down because I can never remember all of them. The Sueva, Alemanni, Lombards, Anglo-Saxons, Vandals, Visigoths, Franks, Ostrogoths, Rely, and Burgundians. The Burgundians became the Swiss. The Franks, of course, became the French. The Suevi, the Portuguese, the Alemanni, the Germans. I think the word for uh, German in Spanish is Alemans or something like that. Um, the Anglo-Saxons, of course, is England. Uh, the Lombards, the Italians. And we'll find out what happened to three of the, little horn, the, three of the horns in a moment. So the little horn comes up among these nations of Western Europe. Geographically, that's where you can find it. If you look at uh, verse 24, it tells us that this little horn comes up after them. In Bible prophecy, there's two very helpful things to help you identify things. You want to know where it happened, and when it happened. And once you have those two identifying marks, it's pretty easy to figure out what's going on. Well, when did it happen? It happened sometime after AD 476 because that's when those other 10 horns were put in place. Daniel 7 verse 8 again, it tells us that this little horn plucks up three, and it tells us even more information about it, plucks them up by the roots. 
Now, I've got a garden. What happens when you pluck something up by the roots? It's not coming back again. And that explains why three of these nation states are not in existence today. It says also in verse 8, there were eyes like the eyes of a man, and it shouldn't really surprise us that a nation has a man at its head. Verse 25, if you look down to verse 25, Daniel chapter 7, by the way, is divided neatly in half. The first 14 verses are the vision. The last 14 verses are the explanation the angel gives of the vision. So we're kind of bouncing back and forth to pick up all the identifying marks of this little horn power because that's what we're talking about. Verse 25, it says it speaks great words and blasphemies. Put that together with Revelation 13 as well. In Daniel 25, I think it says great words. Verse 25, it also tells us in my King James Version, I think it says it wears out. Verse 25, it wears out the saints of the Most High. It persecutes them. This is a persecuting power. Verse 25, I think we've seen this verse before as well. This power will think to change times and laws. This is a very significant identifying mark. And the last one I think we're going to look at, it rains for a time, times, and what's the half a time, something like that. Time, times, and half a time. Now, we don't speak like this nowadays, so let's take a moment here to figure out what this is. In Daniel chapter 4, you remember the story King Nebuchadnezzar was afflicted with lycanthropy. Do you remember the story? He was wandering around like a beast eating grass. He got God's depression recovery program as we studied in our Secrets for Living Stronger, Living Longer program. Um, And it said seven times will pass over him. Do you remember that? Now, we all understand, everyone understands, those are seven literal years. So here in Daniel 7.25, when you have time, times, and half a time, this is referring to three and a half prophetic years of time. Now, Keith did a very nice job of going over this. Um, We understand that prophetic days equal prophetic or literal years, And um, this is probably the most important time prophecy in the Bible, and I'll tell you why I can say that. I think most time prophecies in the Bible only occur once or maybe twice. This time prophecy occurs seven times. And each time it's, it's the same prophecy clearly referring to the same time period, but it's expressed differently. In Daniel chapter 7 here, we saw time, times, and half a time. In Revelation 12, 14, it says the same thing, time, times, and half a time, but at the beginning of the chapter, it called it 1,260 days. That's exactly the same number of days as you'd find in three and a half years. Again, Daniel's working with 360 uh, 360-day years. In Revelation 13, verse 5, it's described as 42 months. This time prophecy occurs in Daniel 7, Daniel 12, twice in Revelation 11, twice in Revelation 12, and once in Revelation 13. Very important time prophecy to understand. So, in prophecy, as Keith taught us, a day represents a year. These 1,260 days, or 1,260 years, that's how long this little horn power would have political authority and be in power. And again, Ezekiel 4, verse 6, Numbers 14, 34, the two texts that um, Keith shared with you, and he showed you how this prophetic principle helps us pinpoint with accuracy when Jesus would be baptized and would die and when the gospel would go to the Gentiles. We studied Daniel chapter 9. So there's the identifying marks. They come straight from Daniel chapter 7, a little bit from Revelation 13 as well. It's kind of interesting to me that today it's kind of popular for people to think about the Antichrist as this kind of, I don't know, lone ranger sort of figure off in the Middle East somewhere. 
and um, he's going to you know, raise up, proclaim himself God, and raise an army and do all sorts of horrible things. But, and some people will say, well, it's a counterfeit Christ, and Christ was a Jew, therefore this guy must also be a Jew, right? Have you heard this before? I've heard this before. Um, well, I'm not even sure how it can be an individual. I don't know anybody who's lived 1,260 years. Even Methuselah didn't really live that long. What's also fascinating to me is that if you rewind just a hundred or couple hundred years, you'll find that nearly 100% of Protestant Christians knew what this prophecy was talking about. 100%. They all knew. But today we're kind of confused. Back up just a little bit here. This guy's named Martin Luther. And um, we just celebrated the anniversary of this event. In, um, he walked up to the castle church in Wittenberg, Germany, and you know he nailed his 95 theses up there. So in time, Martin Luther would come to claim that Rome, papal Rome, represents this power, the little horn power. It's also the beast being discussed in Revelation 13. Well, he wasn't alone. John Knox, the founder of the Presbyterian Church, he believed the same thing. In fact, I don't know if any of you are Presbyterian, but if you read the Westminster Confession, that all Presbyterians say, you know, this is what we believe. It's written in there. This is what Presbyterians believe, at least if they follow the Westminster Confession of Faith. John Calvin, most Baptist, was traced their spiritual lineage to uh, John Calvin and the ideas that he propounded during the Reformation. He knew exactly who this power was. Roger Williams, the founder of the First Baptist Church here in America, the great leader of religious liberty movement here. The reason that we have the separation between church and state on our continent, Roger Williams, he believed the Bible was talking about Rome. John Wesley, founder of the Methodist Church, founder of the holiness movement, he understood who this power was and lots and lots and other, lots of other people. If you just rewind the clock, 100, 200 years, everybody believed the same thing. Here's why they believed that. If you look back to what happened when Rome was invaded by all these barbaric tribes and it kind of fell out of power, there was a power vacuum in the city of Rome. And what happened is that the bishop of Rome stepped into that vacuum and filled the role, not only for religious purposes, but also for secular purposes as well. Emperor Justinian declared Rome to be the head of all holy churches, and before long, Rome wasn't only the head of all the churches, but all the, the head of all the political power throughout all of Europe as well. It was a church state. The problem was, as it grew in power, Rome didn't stand on the Bible alone. You see, Rome had a problem maybe you've noticed that politicians are like this. You know, there go all the people. I must follow them because I am their leader. Um, as there was popularity attached to Christianity now, lots of people started coming into the church. And as was mentioned in a prior uh, talk, they brought their idols with them. I'll give you an example. If you go to St. Peter's Basilica in Rome today, you'll find this beautiful statue of uh, St. Peter except it started out as a statue of Jupiter. It didn't used to be a statue of St. Peter. So when the pagans decided they wanted to become Christians, they hauled this into the church, and they just rechristened it. This is now St. Peter. Um, see, Rome had a problem with, this is one example, of not standing on the Bible alone. Instead of following the second commandment, they got rid of the second commandment. 
so that they could allow the pagans to come into the church. And down through time, probably little by little, it doesn't happen all at once for any of us. Satan doesn't come to any of us and just pound us with error and say, you just need to accept this. It happens little by little. Um, Rome more and more followed tradition and less and less followed the Bible. Going to a priest to confess sins, the sacraments, indulgences, which was the main thing Martin Luther was concerned about. Salvation through the sacraments and Jesus rather than through Jesus alone. Well, let's go back to these nine points and let's see if Martin Luther was right. So far, all I've told you is that Martin Luther, John Knox, and a lot of other smart Christians 100, 150, 200 years ago believed that. Let's see if they were right. The first point, is the Vatican little? Sure it is. It's only a sixth of a square mile. Of course, exercising an outside influence. Did it rise up among the horns in Western Europe? Yes, it did. Did it come after those other 10 horns were settled? Yes, it did. They were all set in place before the Vatican came to power. Again, I mentioned the um, uh, decree of Justinian, and there's a lot of history there. You're welcome to read about it. It's very interesting. Did it pluck up three of the other horns by the roots? Yes, it did. It destroyed the Heruli, the Ostrogoths, and the Vandals who opposed their teachings. It plucked them up by the roots. Those three nations don't exist now. Does it have a man at his head? Sure it does. Luther was definitely right about that. Does it speak great words and blasphemies against God? Well, let's take a little bit more time here because we want to look at that biblically. Um, what's the biblical definition of blasphemy? Well, here's a couple things from uh, the New Testament. The Jews answered Jesus. That's Jesus there in this passage. Saying, for a good work we do not stone you, but for what? Blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. It's blasphemous for any human being to claim to be God, but is it blasphemous for Jesus? No, of course not, because he is God. I think that we might find that the Roman church has said some fascinating things that find it on the wrong side of this definition of blasphemy. A couple examples. The supreme teacher in the church is the Roman pontiff. Union of minds, therefore, requires, together with a perfect accord in the one faith, complete submission and obedience of the will to the church and to the Roman pontiff as to God himself. That's the view of the Vatican. This is Pope Leo XIII, I guess. We hold on this earth the place of God Almighty. Now, I'm sure it's true that not everybody who goes to Mass on Sunday believes this, but that's the official teaching of the Roman church. Here's another definition in the Bible, Luke 5:21. The scribes and Pharisees began to reason saying, "Who is this man that speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone?" Certainly a man claiming to forgive sins is blasphemous. That's not what the Bible teaches. Jesus, of course, can forgive sins because he is God. There's more recent this is Pope John Paul II. You can read that. What he's saying is you can't get forgiveness by going straight to God. When a person goes to confession, the priest would say in Latin, I absolve you or ego te absolvo. You know? The church says they stand as a representative just passing on from God the gift of forgiveness, but because of Jesus ripping the veil when he died on the cross, we don't have to go to another person to receive forgiveness of sins. We go directly to Jesus. And when the priest says, ego te absolvo, it means I absolve you. And that is, in my opinion, not correct. 
There's a couple more things here. It indicates that Rome would persecute people. If you know your church history, you know that that has indeed happened. And again, we don't want to blame any individual, and we even want to be careful blaming systems because it seems to me that anytime one group of persons gains any sort of power, they tend to persecute other people, don't they? Isn't that our natural human nature? We need to be very careful blaming others, but this is history. Here's some pictures of a Jan Hus or a John Hus. You can visit the spot uh, in southern Germany where he was tried and not far from there, there's a stone marking the place that he was burned at the stake. My brother-in-law made a wonderful video series about our Christian heritage. If any of you are interested, talk with me afterwards. It's, it's free. I can get it for you on YouTube. You can go to Oxford, England. Latimer and Ridley were burned at the stake there. Rome did this again and again. My father-in-law shared conservative estimates are that 50 million people lost their lives to religious persecution. And this wasn't bad people trying to do bad things to other bad people. This was people who felt they were doing the will of God, partly because they didn't understand their Bibles. And who could blame them? The Bible was chained up. They didn't have access to it. But history testifies that Rome was a persecuting power. The Bible said this entity would think to change times and laws. Now, I mentioned a moment ago the church had a problem early in its history. All the pagans were coming into the church, and they brought their idols with them. So what happened? The idols stayed, and the second commandment was de-emphasized. Well, that left only nine commandments. What now? Well, fortunately, the tenth one's rather long, so the church divided the one about coveting in two and got it back to ten commandments. But can anybody take the word of God and tamper with it like that? No. We also know, in a previous presentation, the Roman church explains that we are the ones responsible for changing the fourth commandment. Well, they call it the third commandment, of course. We are the ones responsible for that. The one commandment that deals with time, time for worship. We saw this already. This is uh, from the Converts Catechism. Which is the Sabbath day? Oh, Saturday is the Sabbath day. Well, why do we go to church on Sunday? Because the Catholic Church transferred the solemnity from Saturday to Sunday. We've previously seen that. There's another quote from the Catholic Encyclopedia saying essentially the same thing. And again, notice it's called the third commandment. Rome said, pray to man for forgiveness of sins. Rome said, obey the law, but not the law of God, the law of man. You can only have salvation through the church. Don't wait to be baptized by immersion. Baptize your babies. And there's a lot of other things that are not based on the word of God. They're based on tradition. In Daniel 7.25, it said that this entity would reign for 1,260 years. And that's exactly what happened. Rome came to full power when the third of those little horns was plucked up. That happened in 538 A.D. The papacy was enthroned with full civil and religious power in that year. And 1,260 years later, one of Napoleon's generals named Berthier marched down to Rome, took the pope captive, and he died in, uh, it was Pope Pius that took him into exile, and he died just a year later. Rome suffered a deadly wound. It lost its civil power in 1798 A.D., so there they are, nine identifying marks. If we had time, we could look at more. And I'm telling you, they all pointed only one direction. But again, a lot of these historical problems did not result because these are bad people trying to do bad things to other bad people. It's because good people were doing what they conscientiously thought was right 
and trying to, shall I say, force other people to be good according to their definition of what good is. So what we find is that Rome today is a system based not on the Bible and not on Christ, but on Christ and works, Christ and penances, Christ and the sacraments, Christ and tradition, not the Bible alone and not Christ alone. And when we compare the little horn in Daniel 7 to the beast in Revelation 13, we find they're both describing the same power. I wrote down some um, things here that are similar. They both have 10 horns. They both receive worship. They're both religious and political powers. They both persecute the people of God. They both blaspheme. They both rule for the same time period. Again, the most important time prophecy in the Bible, 1,260 years. They both suffer deadly wounds and then go into captivity. These are describing one and the same power. And all John Knox, Martin Luther, all of our Christian forebears recognize this. So today, when we're trying to understand the Antichrist power, rather than looking to the Middle East and saying, oh, maybe it's Osama bin Laden, or maybe it's Saddam Hussein, or maybe it's whoever the latest bad person to come along is, maybe the answer has been right there in front of us all along. Historically, we've seen what happened in the past. I guess the question is, how could something like this happen today? Is it possible that as Revelation 13 says, the deadly wound will be healed? Well, let's think about a few things. It's been a few years ago now, but Time Magazine ran with this cover photo. Some of you probably remember it. It talked about a holy alliance where President Reagan and former Pope John Paul II worked together to bring down communism. Think about that for just a second. The most significant political change of our generation that completely upset the world order was brought about by a religious leader. Maybe you're aware that the recent normalization of um, relations with Cuba was brought about because Pope Francis worked behind the scenes to bring that about. You know as well as I do that the most influential church on planet Earth is the Vatican. I don't see world leaders going to visit the uh, world headquarters of the Churches of Christ or the Episcopal Church or the Methodist Church. Or, you know, this doesn't happen. But many, many world leaders, including our own president, go to Vatican City to visit the Pope. Why? because of a combination of religious power and political power. There's something different about this church. Now, I want you to understand I'm not speaking about individuals here. The Pope is not the Antichrist. I don't know of a single Pope who's lived 1,260 years. That, that hasn't happened. It's not going to. The Catholic Church, as a system, makes some claims that I consider on the wrong side of the Bible. I work at a Catholic hospital. We appreciate the Catholic hospital sponsoring dinner with the doctor. There's all sorts of wonderful Catholics. And I believe that probably in the kingdom there will be more people from the Catholic church than from my church. I believe that. But as a system, the Bible is extremely clear. And I believe you'll see on Friday night why this is so important. This is extremely important. We saw the warning in Revelation chapter 14. Um, I had a conclusion here, that, but I think I'm going to make a different conclusion. Turn in your Bibles to Revelation 14.
Revelation 14 is an amazing chapter. I already told you that verse 6 talks about how the everlasting gospel includes messages about the beast. We already saw that tonight a little bit. I want to call your attention to one small portion of verse 4. Verse 1 through 5 is talking about a group of people who are on the right side of the great controversy. We could say a lot about this group of people. Every single phrase is loaded here. But I want to invite you to do one thing tonight. This is verse 4. It says in the middle of this verse about this group of people, these are they which follow the, follow the Lamb wherever he goes. Sometimes lambs go places that are not the places you might want to go. When it calls Jesus the lamb, what is that reminding you of? Sacrifice. Are you willing to follow the lamb wherever he goes? What if Jesus calls you to sacrifice? Sacrifice everything for the sake of another. These are the people that are redeemed from among men. These are they that follow the lamb wherever he goes and then follows all the warnings about not following the beast. We're going to study more about this topic because as I introduced you to tonight, this is the greatest warning in all of scripture about not following the beast. <clears throat> and I don't have time to finish this topic tonight. But I think I have time to talk about it again Friday night. But I want to encourage you to consider in your own hearts this question. Are you willing to follow the Lamb? Are you willing to follow Jesus wherever he wants to lead you? Let's pray together. Dear God, I want to be willing to follow the Lamb wherever he goes. And I recognize that each person here has a different struggle. Each of us is being called by you to follow truth. And in each of our lives, you may be presenting different truths at different times. But the Bible at the end of time presents something that's for everybody, the everlasting gospel. And I ask that you will help each person here to follow you wherever you go. In Jesus' name, amen.